On this episode of AvTalk, our resident numbers expert, Gavin Werbeloff, joins us to make sense of the Dubai Airshow Order Book. The NTSB issues recommendations from Southwest 1380, and the first A380 is dismantled. Hello and welcome to episode 71 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with... Jason Rabinowitzson. Hello, Ian. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you, sir? I am also well. This is 71, huh? 71, yes. We've reached eating free at the local diner before 5 p.m. Hot damn, early bird special time. Yes. Uh, so we've got the blue light on and we're ready to go. Gonna get some prime rib. Ooh, that sounds good. That does sound good. Doesn't it? Speaking of prime... No, I don't know. Speaking of nothing, you went to Madrid. What? Uh, yeah, I was just... I don't know how I was gonna turn prime rib into a flight to Madrid. It, it just wasn't gonna work. No. So anyway, you went to Madrid and you made it back. How were things? It was good. I flew Delta there on a pair of 767-300s, and on the way there, I actually went through Amsterdam and connected on a new airline. I think I mentioned this last time, Air Europa, who I had never flown before and probably my first and last ever time flying them before they're absorbed by IAG and eventually rolled into Iberia. Who knows at this point? We'll see. But I was supposed to be on a 787-8, and on the day of, unfortunately, the aircraft was swapped out for an A330, but one of particular note that we may have talked about last Definitely time Definitely talked about. We did. Titled an episode on it. Whatever. It was the very same A330 involved in the hijacking scare that had pretty much shut down half of Amsterdam's airport two days prior. And I'm guessing the schedule was a little out of whack because of that very aircraft being many hours late. So they had to sub it in for my flight again instead of a 7-8, which probably had to cover for one of its flights. And it was just very, very funny to be on the same exact route on the same exact aircraft that just a couple days ago had had that big hijacking scare that turned out to be nothing but uh, pilots fat fingered the squat code and sent it when they weren't supposed to. But that was uh, that was different. During boarding, you didn't happen to ask the captain if you could see how the transponder worked, did you? For all I knew, that was the actual flight crew involved in that incident, so I probably didn't want to push that. <laughs> Sir, you need to get off the plane now. Yeah, you're a security risk. Get the hell off my plane. But uh, <laughs> it was... A flight that, I mean, that's one hell of a dumpy aircraft back in economy. They're they're gearing up to retire those within the next couple years, and (laughs) it was no 787. But you made it, you enjoyed Madrid, and you're back now, and uh, where are you going next? Anywhere? A little place called Stockholm. Ah, yes. We'll be together for, I think it's episode 73, I believe, will be our episode from Stockholm this year. There will be reindeer races. Excellent. There was some cool stuff in Madrid. It's one of the very few places that Cubana sends its Aleutian IL-96 to. I saw it hanging out uh, all buttoned up somewhere. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to get any photos of it, but just seeing that was pretty cool. I always enjoy flying through Madrid just because the the terminal, that, that T4S, that satellite, is all just a truly beautiful terminal. You can walk to the end and basically see everything. So I do enjoy doing that. Yeah. Unfortunately, on uh, my Delta flight out, they operate out of Terminal 1, and then it's like some satellite disgusting little pier that's still under uh, renovations that pretty much Delta is exclusively using right now. And it had a view of uh, nothing. So everywhere you go is basically LaGuardia. Yeah, sometimes it's even actually LaGuardia. (laughs) I am so sorry. Mm, It happens. So my travels took me to Washington, D.C. over the past couple weeks, and I got to spend some time with the folks at NOAA in the Volcanic Ash Advisory Center. And we are going to have a future episode where we're going to talk with them, the folks at the Atlantic Volcanic Ash Advisory Center, so basically responsible for the eastern seaboard and areas into central and small parts of South America. 
advising aircraft to not fly through volcanic ash clouds. And we're going to learn more about why that's not a good idea. And we'll also talk to folks um, who work at the Alaskan Volcanic Ash Advisory Center. So kind of see what the differences are there in, in what they do and learn more about that. And I also got an airfield tour of DCA. So that was a lot of fun seeing some of the things that they have. I had never been able to experience a bird cannon before. So that was an interesting experience. No, it's not a cannon that fires birds. That was an interesting experience because it plays the sound of distressed animals and then it fires like an air cannon. It is loud and did in fact scare me. The birds, not so much. Wow, that seems counterproductive. Yeah, I, I know, but they did that. And, and so we got a, a neat airfield tour and that was a good time. We got a tour of the construction that they're doing, Project Journey, which is basically the rebuild of the entire airport, seeing how they're reconfiguring where everything is because there's the super old Terminal A, uh, which was built under the Roosevelt administration. So there's that. And then there's the more modern Terminal B, which looks like an actual airport as opposed to like a bus station from the 1930s and 40s that happens to have planes at it. So, you know, really interesting juxtaposition there to we're building all of this new stuff. We both had exciting things. You got to go to Madrid. I got to go to D.C. And now we're back for this particular episode of the podcast. And Yeah, and you definitely got to fly out of O'Hare without any issues or delays, right? Oh, yeah. That was fun. It took me six flights to get out of O'Hare. We got snow that day. And so the worst part was the flight that I was originally booked on at 7 a.m. left on time, arrived on time, and had no problems whatsoever. And why weren't you on that flight? It's a long story that involves lots of things like familial obligations and being a good husband and father. Mistakes I will never repeat again. Mm -mm. So I had switched my flight to an 11 a.m. flight because a couple things. Because of the snow, I wanted to make sure everyone got to work and school properly. And I didn't have to actually be in D.C. until the evening. It turns out that I didn't get there until Tuesday morning at uh, 1 a.m., but you know it, it all worked out. I made friends with some folks in the airport. I walked the entire length of O'Hare Airport except for Terminal 5, so all of the domestic terminals I walked literally from one end to the other, and all of the piers and wings and, and all sorts of good stuff. Good fun stuff. So, so that that was a worthwhile experience. If nothing else, then I can say that I have done it. But that is over with. My flight back from DC took off early, landed early. It was great, and now we're back. The past couple weeks have actually been relatively quiet, dare I say? And we're going to talk with Gavin Werveloff later in the show about. And the Dubai Air Show and some orders that have happened there and, and figure out what's going on with, where airlines are trying to rationalize what airplanes they're buying. One of the things that we've been following over the past 18 months now is the Southwest 1380 accident that occurred over Pennsylvania where the uh, engine of a Southwest 737 CFM 56 engine suffered an uncontained engine failure. That led to the puncture of one of the windows in the aircraft. That led to the death of one of the passengers. And so this week, the NTSB held their board meeting on that particular accident and issued a set of recommendations, the biggest of which is that the nacelle of the engine is redesigned to better contain any type of the fan cowling is redesigned to contain any type of fan blade damage. You know, the fan blade separates from the, the fan hub, and the cowling would be redesigned to contain that particular incident, which is not what happened in this case, or the case in, I believe it was Pensacola, Florida where a Southwest 737 diverted because of a similar issue with the engine. That final report is out, and the NTSB has, I want to say it's like 1,500 pages of documentation and recommendations and things like that to the FAA to make 
the aircraft safer and, and the NTSB doing exactly what it's supposed to do, making safety recommendations so that flying is safer. Right. And it's important to remember that while this is NTSB's recommendation to the FAA, it doesn't mean the FAA or Boeing will actually do it. Right. But in this particular case, Boeing has already said, yes, we're going to do it. Right. Which we don't know how they're going to do that or on what scale, but it's going to be interesting to see because there's quite a number of NGs out there. Right. And so I would say that it's important to note that the issue that causes the engine failure is being closely monitored from an airworthiness directive that requires repetitive inspections of the fan blades and fan blade hub assembly. So theoretically, and I know that no one is in a mood to give Boeing or any airframer or, or engine maker the benefit of the doubt here, but theoretically this won't happen again because the root cause is being repetitively inspected and resolved before it gets to that particular stage of life. That said, Boeing has said they are working on a retrofit correction for the fan cowl assembly. They, they haven't said exactly what it was, but they have said that they're going to fix it. And I believe the NTSB said that they went into this expecting not to see this issue all too frequently. And by the time they were completed, they were kind of surprised how often or how prone this particular part was to actually failing in this manner. So it's good to see that Boeing is completely behind this and will it's a little late to uh, change the design because they are not creating any new NGs, but to go back and retrofit existing engines is good. I think there's like a handful of NGs left to be delivered. I think it's like a literal handful. You know, there can't be more than a few left to be delivered, but there are still you know thousands flying. So obviously the issue is still an important one. The Dubai Air Show was this week. And we'll talk to Gavin in a few moments about orders and deliveries and order books and things like that. But one of the things that I wanted to bring up first was, can we call it aviation concept art that came out this week? Mm, that's, that's generous, uh, I, mean, I think. It, so we'll put a link to the photos in the show notes so that you can know what we're mocking as we mock it. So go ahead and click the link in the show notes to the art now. And then you can follow along with us. But the A220 could become like an observation car uh, aboard a, a meandering train through the nope. Alps. Nope, 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 nope. Or they could replace the floor with what appears to be some sort of wood flooring. It looks like a sauna. Don't get me wrong. I think it would be awesome to have an airplane sauna, just not fly out. Yeah. So what Lufthansa Technique has put out, they call it the Sky Retreat concept. It basically removes the wall between the passenger cabin, or in this case, it's not really, it's a, a private jet, a private A220. They have removed the wall between where the people are and where the flight deck is. And it's just kind of like you watch these shows on HGTV or whatever on basic cable where it's an open concept kitchen. This is a an open concept airplane where you're sitting in the cabin and you're, you're just looking at the pilots and looking out the cockpit windows and looking at all the instruments. And there's literally no barrier between the cabin and the flight deck. And I can list a million reasons why this is a terrible idea. And I like the guys at Lufthansa Technica. I know them and I, they are good at what they do. But this is just like, why? The whole thing like didn't make any sense to me. Sometimes I get where they're going with the idea. And we've talked about ideas that will never fly, but kind of make a bit of sense, like the cargo base sleeper holds, or what was the one thing that actually became a product? Was it the using the bleed air to bake cookies that was in Hamburg a few years ago? Yes. That was BE Aerospace back when they were still BE, where they, yeah, basically that. Yeah. I mean, there, there's all sorts of these goofy things, but like the cookie thing, that's neat. Right. It's, I want hot cookies on a plane and they found a way to do it. Yeah. The sleeper pod thing kind of solves a problem of the upcoming ultra long haul expansion that, that we're, you know, kind of beginning to see. But I don't understand why you know, turning your A220 into a private sauna. And what irks me, and this is one of those things where we talked about aviation concept art with, with airport design and things like that. And I've gone on rants 
here and elsewhere. But they didn't have seatbelts and they didn't have shoes. Mm, yeah. And that just struck me as so very odd. And it's also, even if it is a private jet, you still want a barrier because the passengers can be loud and that could interrupt and communication back between the two pilots and air traffic control. They could be drunk. They could be other things and they could very easily interfere with the flight crew in this layout. And yeah, uh, the whole thing was just, weird. Just no. Uh, but it exists and, and have a look and I don't know. I don't know what to take, but I just thought we, it was one of those things where I saw it. I'm like, why? What is the kernel of truth of this particular concept? I, I just couldn't find it. Either way, with the Dubai Air Show, besides coming up with, with some interesting concept art out of Lufthansa Technique, the A320 family has overtaken the 737 order book for the first time, which is a pretty big deal. And there's also been some interesting orders and things like that, some surprises, some not-so-surprises, and some interesting stuff that, that came out of Dubai this year. So we figured we would talk to our resident numbers expert, Gavin Werbeloff, and that is what we're going to do after this very short break. So stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back. We are now joined by our resident numbers expert, Gavin Werbeloff, to talk about the order book that has come out of this year's Dubai Air Show. Gavin, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me back. I always go with the slide rule. I feel it's more of the aviation ethos. Is Oh, yeah. I'm a 100% Excel <laughs> jockey. Uh, we all know he's a spreadsheet guy, ain't you? So the Dubai Air Show was the professional ordering airplanes portion of the show is now pretty much over and they've moved into the, hey, look, there's some pretty planes and flying displays and things like that. So what we saw out of the show was not a lot of huge surprising orders, a few chin scratchers, a few cocked heads maybe, but not too many huge surprises and not a huge order book. Nearly 300 orders, 231 firm orders, and then another 67 letters of intent or memorandums of understanding, which are basically, we might want to buy these planes eventually. One day, if nothing else this year, it was about aligning orders with reality. Yeah, there was a lot of, I guess to use a phrase from my MBA days, right-sizing of the order book. You had, I guess, the big right-sizing fell to, to Emirates and their kind of rationalization of their aircraft, or, or maybe not because they've changed their mind more than well, more than a handful of times, I think, about what aircraft they're going to have in their future fleet. So let's start with the home team and Emirates's, uh, what they did with their order book. God, I mean, they can't seem to make up their mind, which I think is the theme with Emirates. I guess maybe a year ago now, almost a year ago, they canceled the much of the backlog of their A380 order and announced a conversion to 40 A33900s, which is the NEO, and 30 A350900s. And as of the Dubai Air Show, that has been converted again to 50 A350900s. At the same time, there was this sort of lurking 787-10 order that was announced and never formalized, and it seems to have drifted off into the sunset, and they have converted 30 of their 150-strong backlog of 777Xs to 787-9s. It doesn't make sense, but it does make sense, because Emirates had been in the process of basically clearing out everything from its fleet that couldn't operate every flight. So they'd gotten down to 777-200LRs, 777-300ERs, and A380s, and that was the entirety of their fleet. And they only had 10-200LRs, and those were pretty specialized. But with the advances in the 300ER, that had taken over a lot of that specialized flying. They just sort of made the 300ER work for Dubai-Dallas and Dubai-Houston, and the A380 went to L.A., and so it was really a fleet that was only planes that could do 8,000 nautical miles. And then they decided, well, we might want to start 
shuffling around our fleet so that we have things that are better at shorter ranges. Because if you think about it, Dubai Heathrow's maybe six hours. And so all of Europe is basically the equivalent of a transcon. Why you need a plane that's capable of flying 8,000 miles is beyond me for that. But that's what Emirates wanted to do originally. And then they started thinking, let's better fit the plane to the mission profile. And so they ordered A350-900s and 78710s. And now they've gone back to this, well, we need every plane in our fleet to be able to fly every route in our network. That's what you have. Anything that they have on order could do 8,000 miles. There was a while where it seemed like Emirates was almost kind of returning back to the old days where it did have some variation in its fleet where it had the 777-200LR that could fly literally anywhere. But it also had the A330s, which are obviously do not fly nearly as far, but they also had- And the 777-300s. Right. And they had the A340, I think it was of the 500 variety. So they did have a, a good amount of variety in their fleet, and now it seems like we're we're back to the days of everything can go everywhere for some reason. Right. Cathay has picked up their 777-300A market frames at a nice discount. So as they've been retiring the 200As, which were really old and really limited, they're replacing them with the 300As, which I think is a shrewd move, given everything that's going on in Hong Kong right now. But... Everything has to be able to fly everywhere, and that's how we want it. It's a bit odd. But I think the other thing is that by converting 30777Xs to 7879s, granted, there's only one carrier in the world that operates A350-900s and 7879s side by side, and that's Vietnam. And I don't know why they do it, but there's an argument to be made that given their location, it's probably not a bad idea to be big customers of both Europe and the United States for things like airplanes. You've actually flown them, Jason. I sort of defer to your judgment there. Yeah, I flew both the 787-9 and the A350-900 on, on Vietnam. And, and interior-wise, they're pretty damn similar. I, it was hard to pick out the differences between the two. And they actually did swap one out for the other on my flight, and it almost made absolutely no difference. <laughs> um, so that was nice. My seat assignment didn't even change between the two. So That's I actually guess, amazing. It is pretty amazing. I was fully expecting a new boarding pass to be spit out, but the seat layout is, is literally identical between the two, which huh. is pretty cool. Yeah. So there are a couple interesting things with this Emirates order. For one, it further dwindles the 777X backlog, which is not great for Boeing at this point, with uh, Lufthansa recently saying it was probably not going to pick up on its options past its firm orders. Another thing would be the A380 backlog is now down to like a dozen, I think. Emirates was at one point going to take 162 total aircraft. Now they're down to 123. I think there are only 11 Emirates A380s left to be delivered plus one ANA. So we're down to a dozen A380 orders outstanding left, which is kind of really sad. But getting back to the 777X backlog, I can't help but think this reduction in 30 is going to hit the 777 entirely. Boeing's already announced that they've sort of put development on hold indefinitely for that plane. And I guess what the Project Sunrise test flights show, and also what Air New Zealand is about to start doing with the 7879, and they're getting a 2.5% takeoff weight increase, I think those 7879s could end up replacing the flying that was going to be done by this 7778s and what has been done by the 777LRs. Yeah. You sort of take away the cargo load, and that thing with a passengers can go really, really far. In a way, it's a good problem to have, but as far as the 777-8 goes, it sort of takes away the development rationale for it even more. Looking at kind of a historical perspective, isn't this what happens when a new aircraft is developed? It's kind of, you know, we're going to develop these parameters, we're going to develop around this particular business case, and then sometimes... It ends up being that you know the the larger airplane or the longer airplane or the slightly heavier airplane ends up being what is better for the market and 
the aircraft that was kind of the original variant or, or the one that we're going to build first or, or develop a little bit more first doesn't end up being the aircraft that airlines need. Well, it's going to end up being the the 787-8, isn't it? And the same thing with the 767-200, the original. And- Those are the two aircraft I was thinking of exactly. Well, here's the interesting thing, is that the 777-8 is actually a shrink of the 777-300ER. It's not a growth of the 200ER. Is that the same as like how the original C-Series that was, uh, it's actually a shrink, not a lengthening of the frame? I believe so. So basically when Boeing was designing 777X, they took the 300ER as the baseline and they stretched it to make the 9 and shrank it to make the 8 because they wanted something a little bigger than the 200, which has been very out of favor for a while. But even the... The sales prospects for a 777X freighter are pretty slim just because, you know, you look at who's going to buy it. And a couple weeks ago, IAI Bedek, which is that they do a lot of, you know, uh, freighter conversion work, announced that they're going to start converting 777-300ERs to a package freighter configuration, which is pretty much tailor-made for FedEx. I can't imagine them not buying them. Because if you look at what they do with their 777 freighters now, they fly them, you know, Hong Kong, Memphis in a straight shot. And it's just like 8,000 miles. And what that tells you is that they're volume limited, not payload limited. You know, they're going out below maximum takeoff weight. And so a stretched plane with the same maximum takeoff weight is going to suit them fine because it means they get to carry more low density cargo. And the other thing about the 777X is that it doesn't have an increased max zero fuel weight versus LR and the 300ER. So any increase in range is solely going to come from the wing and the engines. You're not going to get any more payload out of it. So it's going to be a really difficult sell for Boeing to get airlines to cough up even more dollars for a freighter that actually doesn't carry any more payload weight than a 777-200 freighter. I can't see any airlines that would be cargo operators that would be clamoring for, for a plane like that where they can you know easily just take a stop. I mean, yeah. Right. You don't need more than 5,000 miles of range in a freighter. We've already gotten to the point where you can get anything anywhere in the world pretty quickly. You know, I don't see the development rationale for an airplane that would you know, Anchorage doesn't have anything to worry about. Right, exactly. So, I mean, that's one thing that moves that to the side too. But is there also, and, and this is something I've been thinking about, I haven't really dug into it because it, it happened this morning. Is that 787-9 both a rationalization, the Emirates 787-9 order, the, the 30 airplanes, is that both a rationalization of their order book and also kind of a bridge to whatever they end up doing next. I mean, because the 787-9, in its relatively short life, has proven itself to be quite the airplane. Uh, I mean, and and we've talked about this in previous episodes where Jason and I are are both of the opinion, which is the correct opinion, the only opinion, and the right opinion, that the 787-9 is the right 787. That's right. For what you want it to do. If you want to gas up and fly it 9,000 miles, that's the one for you. The 787-10 is a really interesting airplane and an incredibly capable airplane for certain route profiles. Well, United's pretty much running the Dash 10 as a transatlantic school bus at this point, isn't it? It's just hopping back and forth and back and forth. Right, but they're also running at Newark, Tel Aviv, and they're going to run it, I believe... I want to say, did they get Haneda slots for LA or San Francisco? They're going to be running at Trans-Pacific from the West Coast. On one of the shorter, you know, as short as a Pacific Cross it could be. And Air New Zealand is going to be ordering 787-10s too. It can hit Auckland to the West Coast of the US, no problem. So for those missions that are, call them traditional 777-200ER missions, it's an incredibly capable plane. I remember seeing the first Singapore one that got sent from Charleston with a bunch of journalists on it, and it was able to go Charleston Sapporo nonstop. Granted, it you know only had fifty people on it, but that's seven thousand miles. 
I guess what I'm trying to get at here is not the 787-9 versus the dash 10. I guess what I'm saying is the 787-9 versus whatever that next generation is. Is you know, is Emirates saying to Boeing the 777X there the 777-8, the smaller version of the the 777X. Nice try. Let's see what you can come up with next. In the meantime, we're going to continue to give you money, but we're going to move it over here to the proven airplane. The interesting thing is the idea that the cuts, the 30 cuts to the 777X backlog are going to come entirely from the Dash 8 is entirely my conjecture. But it sort of follows, given the fact that we saw a few months ago, I think it was the air current, the inimitable air current that announced that 777-8 development has been sort of placed on hold indefinitely. It makes it hard to buy a plane that's not in development. Right. There's that. But I mean, the the other Emirates issue is that how many people do you need to fly and how far do you need to fly them? The 7 was pretty much made for the ME3 because who else needs to fly that many passengers and that much cargo 8,000 nautical miles? No one. The globe just doesn't work that way. You know, there aren't enough destinations for anyone else to hit that require that much range. And that's one of the interesting things that the Lufthansa Group order has always struck me, you know, where those aircraft are going to go. Look, Lufthansa's got 747-400s and they've got 747-8s. I think the depressed price of oil is making it very difficult for anyone to justify spending that much money for new planes relative to the price of oil. As the price of oil goes up, the rationale for buying those new, really expensive fuel-efficient planes goes up. But as long as oil's not going through the roof, it's a tough sell for planes that size. I mean, the 787 was interesting just because it brought range payload capability to a size of plane that it just wasn't there before. A 747-400 was able to do LA Sydney. Now you've got something that's half the size, or two thirds, you know, two thirds the size of a 747-400 that's able to do the same thing. That was groundbreaking. But in terms of taking something that exists and making it, in terms of size and range, and making it incrementally better. It has to justify its price, and with oil being depressed, it's a really, really hard sell. So let's shift gears a little bit from the long haul, so to speak, and move over to the 737 MAX order book, which increased by a few at Dubai. Sun Express ordered uh, 10 737 MAX 8s, and Aristana signed a uh, letter of intent for 30 of them. And they've already got a few in the fleet. No blockbuster order like the IAG order that came out. Important to remember also that for those unfamiliar, Sun Express is uh, an oddball joint venture between Lufthansa and Turkish. So there is an <laughs> interesting twist that Lufthansa kind of, sort of, just ordered some 7.3 Maxes. Well, they did say they were going back and forth. There you go. You know, they're trying to decide. Sun Express is an interesting case because... It's an order for 10, so not a huge order, but it brings us into the double digits. So it's enough to kind of ponder. And then the Aristana order, I forget how many Aristana has, I shouldn't say has already, because I think they have a few that are as yet undelivered post-grounding. But they're going to add 30 more, or up to 30 more, they say, to their fleet. I mean, the IAG order was huge, and one can only assume that they're either not paying for those aircraft or paying so little that the the cost of the paperwork is probably more expensive than the actual aircraft. <laughs> yeah, well, for Aristana, it's actually not going to Aristana proper. It's for a new, basically a spinoff, a low-cost carrier under Aristana. I don't believe it will be Aristana itself operating the MAX and Aristana itself does not operate any 7.3 MAX right now. So Aristana proper does not have any 7.3s, and these will all be going to a new carrier to be started up Astana soon. Air. No, I, I don't know. I don't know if that's the name. <laughs> and all 40 of these orders are for 7.3, 7.8s. And I guess Boeing will get the plane back in the sky. The question is, is the market appetite? No one wants A319neos 
or 737-7s. You look at the order books for those and they're just really, really small. I mean, the Max 7 has, what, uh, WestJet and Southwest, and they've both cut yeah. their orders. And didn't somebody just order the A319neo, though, like two weeks yeah, ago? Yeah, wasn't it the Indigo, that big Indigo order? I think so, yeah. Which I was kind of surprised at. But yeah, Airbus was probably surprised, too. <laughs> hey, we'll build them. Why not? I will not say who, but someone sent me the, the A319neo is such a small seller that when Airbus for their Airbus corporate jet did their A319neo ACJ model for NBAA a few weeks ago, they didn't even go through the effort on the model to change the engines. The model had CFM56s on it, but the rest of the plane just said Neo. Fancy. That's yeah. how few they're uh, selling. I mean, I'm still shocked anyone <laughs> bought it, but hey, if it works for your fleet, why the hell not? Yeah, but Indigo seems to really like the the 319neo, the 319 in their kind of portfolio of, of airlines. Right. I guess it works in some places. I think the Indigo Airlines are what? Well, hold on. Backing up, it was Indigo the investment group or Indigo the airline that bought that had the big order. <laughs> it was the investment group. So that's what JetSmart in Chile, Frontier. And there's a fourth that I'm forgetting. And Jason will pull it out of a hat. Yep. We'll throw it in when we edit. There you go. We, we won't do that. The point that I'm trying to make is that they seem to be a fan of putting the 19 into service in interesting ways. That was my only point. Volaris is the other carrier. Uh, there you go. Definitely didn't Google that. 19 is it kind of weirdly like a little brother to the 757-200 in that it can get out of high altitude short field airports better than the 320 can. And if you're looking at where, you know, JetSmart and Volaris are operating, that answers that question. And and I guess to to a lesser extent Frontier out of Denver, but even that, I mean, it gets a little if it whiz is, you know, just operating throughout Europe. So I, I think that's less of an issue. But but JetSmart especially and Volaris, depending on, you know, which route you're talking about, I think that kind of answers that question. There's a lot to miss there. Well, the airplane formerly known as the baby bus. I've now heard A220s referred to as the baby bus. That's just wrong. Come on. Um, I'm not sure how I feel about that. I'm willing to call it the A220. I'm not willing to call it the baby bus. That's going to be a tough sell for you, Ian? There's going to be no sale. It's just not for sale. But getting back to the max order, I mean, at what point, because eventually we're going to have to see the orders pick back up. And if we were waiting for a dam to break, you would have thought that it would have been IAG's order. But Dubai shows that that clearly wasn't the case. So is there airlines saying, you know, I don't want to be the first? I mean, because these were relatively small orders. I mean, Sun Express is a, I mean, if you don't know the German Turkish Riviera leisure market, you're going to go Sun Express, who is that? And if you're looking at Aristana's new venture that Jason has heard of, but I have not, so that answers that question. I mean, are more established carriers that are looking to renew their fleet still waiting to say, okay, somebody's going to have to go first, or, or we're not ordering these until the aircraft's back in the air? I mean, obviously, we don't know the answer, but I'm just kind of wondering out loud. Look, I think that we've already talked about the market reception of the MAX 7, but you also have the MAX 9 and the MAX 10. Which hasn't been built yet, but I'm just looking at the order book. Copa is on for 21 combined between the two types. Uh, Fly Dubai is up for 120, 70, you know, max nines, 50 max tens. You know, Goal is on for 30 max tens. Lion Air, but you know, who knows what's going to happen there? The order book in United, obviously for for 135. Uh, 35 max nines, 100 max tens. But in terms of performance, if you don't have a big Boeing fleet or you're saying, I need something in multiple sizes, you know, I need 150 seater, 170 seater, a 200 seater, the max is looking more and more, in terms of the market speaking, like a single plane family. No one wants max sevens. Max 9s and Max 10s are difficult to sell. You look at the stated backlog of, and I'm, I'm deferring to Wikipedia here, I'm sure this has changed, but in a total backlog of 5,700 planes, 1,400 are unidentified in terms of model. 
3,200 are dash eights, 80 are dash sevens, 474 dash nines, and 520 are dash tens. So the overwhelming majority of airlines that have picked a model have picked the dash eight. And it is the sort of right size for the airplane. I mean, when that came out, airlines said, aha, we've found the right 737. And the, the 900ER and well, the 900 and the, the 900ER and the MAX 9 and the MAX 10 haven't really done it for airplane buyers. And they've just been getting outsold by the 321neo by such a wide margin. And it comes back to something we talked about the last time I was on with you guys, which is that it's a 60-year-old platform. And is the MAX one iteration too far? That's a whole other conversation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But that does bring up a point that I wanted to get to in the last overall order book that I wanted to discuss, and that was Air Arabia, because they went out and they got uh, 73, not 70, not 75, not 80, 73. That's an incredibly specific number. A320 Neos. Gavin, you know there's someone with a spreadsheet somewhere that came up with that number. It makes sense when we get to the A321neo order. They took 27 A321neos. So there's your 100 airplanes. So so fine. And then they took another 20 A321XLRs. So the 30 overall A321XLRs sold in the show, Flynas took 10 to, to round that out. So Air Arabia took 120 airplanes. And kind of looking at when you're talking about how many seats do you want, what kind of range do you want, you're looking at you know A320neo, A321neo, and then A321XLR. So you're looking at some seats, more seats, more range. It seems to me that Airbus is doing a much better job of saying, here's a spread in our offering. With the A220 you know, edition, we can do all the way from whatever you need on the low end all the way up to, we've closed the A380 line, but if you order a 1,000 of them, maybe we'll reopen it. But between that, I mean, the with the A321 XLR, just kind of wandering the globe in whatever range you could possibly want out of a, a single aisle airplane, it seems to me Airbus is doing a much better job. And, you know, we've talked about the MAX in nearly every episode since March. But what I, I think we haven't talked a lot about, except for one of our conversations with Jen Ostrauer, is kind of Airbus's quiet development of a huge spread in capability. Well, and the thing that the adding the A220 to their offerings did is it allowed them to focus the sort of continued development of the A320 platform on the A321. Because all of a sudden, you've got an A220-100, which is kind of around the size you know, somewhere a little bit smaller than an A319. And you have an A22300, which is somewhere in between a 319 and a 320. You can't be all things to all people. You have to sort of pick the variant that's going to get the engineering optimization. And by adding the A220 to their portfolio, it allowed them to focus their engineering efforts on the A321. And so what we're seeing is the result of that. It's a pretty big result for Airbus. Not a huge show as far as blockbuster orders. The most in a single order was the 73 A320neos. So no one really going out on a limb. But as we talked about, and Jason kind of started off our conversation, you know, it's everyone's figuring out that they need to fill holes or move pieces around to make things work for the next, you know, five to 10 years. We'll look forward to, Jason, what's next? Is it Farnborough or Paris? Help me out here. It's it's Farnborough, right? Farnborough. Yeah. We'll look next. Yeah, I'm sure we'll get email podcast at fr24.com if you can correctly pronounce Farnborough for us, because I always do it wrong. And then we get email from some of our UK listeners. And I appreciate it because people care. I care as well, not for lack of trying. You know who's taking pieces out of their puzzle rather than figuring out where the pieces go. I hope you're going to tell me. Etihad. Etihad. Ah, it's like we talked about this before we recorded. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Jason has advanced knowledge. <laughs> I feel like anytime we talk about Etihad these days, it's, we're just, it's the same conversation over and over again where they've ordered something 
and either unordered it, shifted it around, deferred it, or or in this special case, they're now aging their A350s like fine wine. So let's make this real quick and simple. Etihad is, is not in a good way. It has not been in a good way for years. And it has actually taken delivery from Airbus of 350 1000s, which I did not, four, that I did not even know were delivered and immediately put them into storage in Bordeaux. I don't, they probably never even made it to Abu Dhabi. And now they're just kind of- uh, They're hanging out. Sitting waiting for the reorganization to take effect and and who knows waiting to be uncorked they've been painted so it's not even like they're white tails and can be easily swapped over to somebody else no but i think one of the things that etihad and boeing did announce at the dubai air show was the 787 green liner which is going to be a test bed for environmentally friendly technologies and they announced that they are going to be entering the fleet in january and there is a really wonderful website, nyc787.blogspot.com, that tracks 787 production in excruciating detail. And by looking there, I was able to figure out that actually Etihad didn't have any 787-9s, which is the model that was you know, in the press release, under construction for delivery in January. And so what we can surmise is that they are actually taking one of the HNA whitetails. Biman Bangladesh is taking two of them, the ones that are built in Everett. And it appears one of the ones that is two are built in Charleston, and one of those at least is going to Etihad as the green liner. It appears. And when we figure out where the other one is going, Gavin will rejoin us. I'm sure there will be spreadsheets involved, and we will do another round of this at least after Farnborough. But uh, before that, if anything happens, our resident numbers expert, Gavin Werbeloff, thank you so much for joining us, good sir. Thank you. Thank you, Gavin. I feel like every time we talk to Gavin, I need a spreadsheet to keep up with the numbers that he's keeping up with in his spreadsheet. And saying that out loud now, it makes it sound like we should just have the same spreadsheet in front of us. But I feel like that wouldn't solve the problem. I'm just going to open up Excel and look at a blank spreadsheet for a while. There you go. That works out. But he is always very good at contextualizing why the numbers matter and which numbers matter and which don't. I like bringing him on to better inform things that we can read ourselves. You know, We can look at a chart ourselves, but what does it mean? And I feel like Gavin does a great job at that. One of the things that we talked about with Gavin was the A380 order book down to a dozen, 11 for, for Emirates and one for ANA. But this week also saw the demise of the first A380. Not the first A380 ever built, but the first one to be parted out and dismantled and I guess rolled off into the French countryside. I mean, it's unclear what they're going to do with the, the actual airframe. Yeah, so they've been tearing this thing apart for the better part of this entire year, pretty much picking off whatever pieces could have potential resale value since there is still a substantial A380 operating fleet out there and those aircraft will need parts while they're uh, still operating. But what is left is basically the actual airframe itself and the wings, or I'm sorry, not the wings, not even the wings, but like the tail and the horizontal stabilizer and at this point, I guess we're just waiting for them to turn it into beer cans. We had somebody email us. I'll have to go back into my email, but we talked about this before when they were first kind of going off lease with Singapore, how many beer cans you can make out of an A380. And somebody emailed us with an answer. I'll go back and see if we can get a definitive number. It's sad to see an A380 parted out like that. But remember, this is one of the earliest, if not the original A380, which were not built all that well compared to the modern A380s. It was very, very heavy compared to what is out there now. So Yeah, overweight, the wiring yeah, was a it, mess, it was, and they were still trying to figure out their lives. But still, it was an operating A380 that operated for a decade, and now it's not. And now it will sit for a decade until they figure out what to do yeah, with the rest Yeah, it, it just looks sad, but lots more of that's to come in the very near future. Yeah, yeah. So let's close out the show with a very important conversation about a very serious topic, and that, my friends, is Avatar Airlines. 
the airline for those who think Baltia wasn't ambitious enough. Or a big enough joke. <laughs> I mean, okay, so let's back up. What is Avatar and what is their plan? I don't know. This came up like five years ago when I was on vacation one day, I think in like Japan, and I didn't want to pay attention to it because it was nonsense. And then it went away for like years. And then it popped back up. Now they're back, baby. It popped back up into reality a couple days ago with an actual uh, FAA filing for operating certificate or some, some sort of nonsense. And the filing is just... Yeah, certificate of public conveyance, which is always a, a great... Yeah, it, it's not a real thing. The filing is, if you have the time, read through it. It's basically the joke plan is to operate flights between like... It's a very serious plan, Jason. Very serious plan to operate 747-400s from like the East Coast to Las Vegas for $49 or something. No ticket will be over $99. Sure, why yeah. not? They'll recoup that cost by advertising of the literally everything, including inside the toilet bowl. It'll basically be a flying billboard inside, outside, underside, overside, wherever you can think of. The plan or, or the, the claim would be that the cost of the tickets would be extremely cheap for the routes that they're flying and for the aircraft that they're flying on. It would be a full, almost more than full service airline is, is what the claim is. They would start with was it 10 747-400s and then expand? Sure, sure, uh, yeah. Or expand definitely. up to 10 747 and then they would take deliveries of 747-8s. It's unclear where those would come from. One assumes they would take off the dash 8Is that other airlines are currently operating, but I don't – it's all very unclear to me. Not that any of this matters. What is very clear to me is that this won't happen. It's always fun to see someone try a new angle at not getting an airline in the air as an investment vehicle. Because well, nobody seems to be investing in this. You cannot buy, as far as I'm aware, shares of Avatar Airlines, unlike Baltia, which was a legitimate scam, a legitimate financial scam with an actual airplane or two. If Avatar ever gets to the point where they have an actual decrepit 747 somewhere that they tout at air shows or whatever, I will be impressed. But somehow I think Baltia will stand alone in that regard. Yeah, I mean, it'll be very interesting to see what happens if they move forward with their air operator certificate and things like that to see what happens there. But just, I feel like we're going to talk about this the same way we talk about Baltia. No, no. They're so very different. Baltia was a real scam. This is just a joke. Oh, okay. Well, in that case, we'll revisit this in a future episode, I'm sure, if only to discuss what has become of the non-existent airline as of yet. But just something to be aware of in case you're looking for an investment opportunity. I miss Baltia. <laughs> Said no one ever. And on that note, this has been episode 71 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik, here as always with Jason Rabinowitz, and thank you for listening.